because he lives, I can face today and tomorrow and the next day. Life's worth the living just because he lives. You know, Christ is enough. Really think about that hymn. I was talking to Victor yesterday. He's one of the members over there at Unity. and He was talking about how basically God had taken away so many things in his life. And, and uh, it's in those moments, you know, we realize we shared stories together that you know, Christ is trying to teach us that, that he is enough for us. Christ is enough for me. And, and some of us have been through those circumstances in our lives where, you know, the Lord has basically taught us that lesson. We don't stay taught, but he's taught us that lesson. You know, he strips away one thing after another, layer after layer. Until we crowd in our souls, yes, Jesus, you are enough for me. Because you live, Jesus, and I can live today and face tomorrow. And so uh, I was very encouraged by our time uh, together with the folks there at Unity and Franklin Baptist yesterday. And I hope we do that again. I hope we do it again soon. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to, to John chapter 1. And uh, I want to pray. As you turn in your Bibles there, I'll wait for you to turn in your Bibles there and then we'll pray. John chapter 1 is, is just beautiful. You know, I've been excited all week to, uh, to come and bring this message. Uh, and I've got some notes here, and I may go off notes a little bit. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this, uh, this message today, and it's, it's, it's because Jesus is so beautiful. He's so glorious, and, and John wants us to see right here out of the gate just who Jesus is and how wonderful and marvelous Jesus is. And, and I, I hope and pray today that we will see the Lord Jesus for his own glory and for how wonderful he is. Let's, let's pray together. Ask for the Lord's help in that. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would fill this place and fill our hearts, God, that we would put aside all the distractions of the day and of the week and everything else, Lord, that, that clouds our minds. And, and Spirit, I pray that, that, that we would just see you, Lord Jesus, clearly today. And that we would marvel at you and we would stand in awe of you today, Lord Jesus. That those of us who have believed in you, that we would be strengthened in our faith and our hope and our love in you. And, and for those here in this room that haven't trusted you, Jesus, that they don't, might not even know who you are or what's Jesus about and you know, why am I even here. Lord, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would break through walls of unbelief. and they would see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, the beautiful, wonderful Savior of the world, the hope of the world. And so, God, give us eyes to see today, Lord. Give us ears to hear today, Lord, in this moment, uh, that your name, Lord Jesus, would be magnified and glorified and that you would be lifted up. And we pray in your name. Amen. So John wants us to see the true glory of Jesus right from the start. This gospel is very different than the other gospels. Just compare it. Look at John chapter 1 compared to Mark 1 and Matthew 1 and, John and Luke 1. It's very different the way John approaches his gospel. He wants us to see right out of the gate the true glory of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 is full of declarations concerning who Jesus is, and Old Testament imagery to help us clearly see his identity and his glory. And as I approach the text 
today, you know, you look at it at face value and you say, oh, yeah, this is Jesus calling his disciples. And so, you know, as I've been taught to prepare sermons, I would go and cross-reference that against the other Gospels and give you all the technicalities of how Jesus called his disciples. But God led me to something different this week. He, he basically tapped me on the shoulder, not physically, but in my mind. And he said, look, there's something bigger here that you need to see. Yes, Jesus is calling his disciples, but look at what's being said about Jesus. Look at the declarations that are being made about our Savior in this opening chapter. That's what I'm trying to get at in this text. Yes, he calls his disciples. Yes, there are ways in which he's doing it. But look at what they're saying about him as we read this text. And, and all throughout John chapter 1, it took me back to the opening verses. And I read through John chapter 1 over and over and over again. And, and I tried to draw out everything that's being said, everything that's being declared by various parties, and even John the author himself, about who Jesus is, why he's beautiful, why he came, why he's important to our lives. Why does this matter to us? And that's what the author, John, the apostle, is, is hoping for us to see in this. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He tells us that clearly in the end of the book, John chapter 20, verse 31. He's writing all of this. The purpose of all of this text is for you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, when you cry out to him and confess his name, you have eternal life in his name. And that's what the, the author wants for us. And he doesn't waste any time getting to the main point of this entire book. And that's Jesus. You know, look back at John chapter one. Look at the first verses. I'm going to kind of summarize. You can follow along as I'm summarizing. He, he opens right up. He says, Jesus is the word of God. The very word of God. Jesus embodies it. He lives it. He demonstrated it. He obeyed it. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He was not some great prophet that just walked the earth like Muhammad or some great teacher who brought moral teachings to us like Buddha or any of the other religious systems of the world who have their prophets and their teachers. Jesus is more than that. He is God. Jesus is God. There's no mistaking it. Fully God. Jesus has always been. He, didn't, he wasn't created. These are very important things for us to understand. Jesus was not created. He has always been. In fact, Jesus is the creator of all things. You see that right there and right out of the gate in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He is the creator of all things. Do you want to know how we got here in this place? Jesus created us. In our mother's wombs, he formed us. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. We are fearfully and beautifully and wonderfully made. 
That is a gift of God. He created every one of us. Every one of us. Then it goes on. Jesus is life. Jesus is light. And Jesus, the light of the world, has overcome the darkness. We sing that we have victory in Jesus, and we do. Jesus is the light of the world, and he has overcome the darkness. And, and you don't have to look far to see a lot of darkness in this world. But Jesus has overcome the darkness. The darkness has, cannot comprehend it. He has overcome the darkness. And, and more than that, he, he came into this world, and the text says he tabernacled with us. He tented with us. He dwelt among us. He, he, he got into this world. You can, you can might imagine, you know, here, here's God. You know, if you look at the, the Roman gods and the Greek gods of their time, you know, they were always aloof, you know, up in their clouds. And they don't bother themselves with ordinary people. You know, they're better than that. They kind of stand up there and throw lightning bolts. You know, these are our con concepts of gods in the world. Or, you know, we make for ourselves an idol. And we put the idol up on a, on a podium. And that idol is, you know, much too powerful and, and good to you know be, be involved with ordinary people like us you know we have to pay homage to it and serve it and all these things but it, it's the opposite with jesus he, he is fully god he created all of us he's perfectly holy and righteous and true and he came in the form of a baby he was born of the virgin mary was in, born in a barn, put into a feeding trough as a crib. I mean, it's nasty. That's nasty. You've been in a barn, you know what smells in there. <laughs> There's hay and dirt and nasty everywhere because there were no hotel rooms for the king of the world available. And we know the Christmas stories. No hotel rooms for Jesus. He came and, and he tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. He was born as a baby. He grew up into a man and, and he lived in this nasty world with us. Just think about that. Think about it. I don't want to go live in a barn. That must have been what it could have felt like to Jesus. Like, oh man, I'm around this sin all the time. I'm around this dirt all the time I'm around this unrighteousness all the time it's everywhere it's surrounding me everywhere but that's not our savior no he loves us he he came into this world and tabernacled with us he 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 walked alongside of us he touched us he felt us he got dirty hung out with tax collectors and sinners and he washed his disciples feet we were talking about that last night at, at Unity when we were having our service. You know, we were talking about unity through humility and love and service. And, and Christ demonstrated that for us. He came to the Passover meal with his disciples and he took off his outer garment. He put a towel around himself and he washed the feet of his disciples. This is the king of glory. The king of the universe. Teaching us how to love and serve. I mean, that's not how gods work. You know, if you go to other cultures, you see how the gods work. You put them up on a pedestal and you serve the God. And that's how it works. And you make sacrifices and you, you know, you make the offerings and you serve the God because, you know, gods are kind of tired. They need to be served. That's what Elijah said to 
know, prophets of Baal. Maybe they're tired. You know, maybe we need to wake them up. That's not our God. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't go on vacation. You know, he, he comes into this world and he says, okay, I'm there to save you. I'm going to tabernacle with you. I'm going to show you how to love and how to serve. And, and all who receive Jesus and believe in him are born of God and become children of God and have life in his name. And that's what John wants us to believe today. He wants us to know these things and believe these things. When you believe in Jesus, that old self dies, is buried. The new self that is made new by a Holy Spirit work of God in our hearts comes alive. You're alive in him. You are a child of God when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's what we're taught right here in John chapter 1. You're no longer a, a servant of Satan and, and sin and the devil, because that's what you are apart from Jesus. God's word tells us you serve Satan. You don't believe in Jesus. You serve the God of this world who is Satan. You might not even know that. You think, I'm a pretty good person. I don't serve Satan. Well, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you think you're going to heaven because you're a good person and your good outweighs your bad and you hope it's just all going to work out someday, then whether you understand it or not, you are a child of Satan and the devil and you serve the devil with your life because you can't do anything good on your own. These are things we must understand in our minds and in our hearts. But the good news is that those who receive Jesus, those who look to Jesus and say, yes, I understand I am a sinner. I have sinned. I deserve wrath and punishment for my sin, but I am trusting in Jesus Christ right now. Those who trust him and believe in his name, you are immediately born of God and become children of God. You're adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. It's a beautiful picture. And it really happens in our hearts. We are made new. We are children of God. You're in the family of God. And you have life in his name, the name of Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice in that and rejoice in his glory. And we see further on that Jesus is glorious. He is full of grace and truth. And in him, we receive grace upon grace. This is the age of grace. The wrath and fury of God over sin is poured out on Jesus Christ. And we are in the age of grace that through faith in him and believing in him, we have eternal life and love and grace and mercy of God. Jesus took the wrath we deserve for our sins on himself. And that's what John wants us to see. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We also see that Jesus makes God known to us. You know, we, we cannot understand God apart from Jesus. Our finite little minds, as smart as we think we are, we cannot comprehend God apart from Jesus. We cannot understand God. We cannot rightfully, uh, rightly love God. We don't know how. Jesus is the answer. He's the key to it all. And so he makes God known to us. 
He's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw that last time. As John the Baptist declared, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look at him. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No more sacrificial lambs are needed. Jesus is the lamb, and he is going to die. He died on the cross, the perfect lamb of God. No more sacrificial lambs are needed. And so many people in the world need to know this. You go to other cultures today, and they are still sacrificing animals to their gods to atone for their sins. They do this today. It happens in the world. Because it's in us. It's in us to understand that, you know, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong in my heart. I know there's something wrong. I don't know what to do about it. But, you know, there's the wages of sin is death. It's written in our hearts by God. Somehow, some way he does it. And so across all these cultures, you can see it. Go to China. Go to China and you'll see they have temples set up and they're, they're sacrificing the chicken and they're sprinkling the blood of the chicken all over the altar for the idol or even to their ancestors, because they know somehow, some way that, that shedding blood atones for sin. You see it in all cultures all over the world. You can still see this happening. Because deep in our souls, we know that we have a sin problem that has to be dealt with. But apart from Jesus, we don't know how to deal with it rightly. But with Jesus, we do. We understand through God's word, yes, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the only unique Son of God. We see that also. There is no other. We don't worship the Apostle Paul. We don't worship any of the other authors of the Bible. We worship Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the only unique Son of God. And we're told all of this leading up to our text today. So I haven't even gotten to our text. That's just all the stuff we've seen so far. And it's glorious and it's beautiful. And so what I want to do today is look at John chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 35 now. And again, I, I want us to see this. You know, we're going to see him calling his disciples and his disciples starting to follow him. But I want us to, to look for and pick out what they say about him, what is really happening, and, and the declarations they make of who Jesus is and how glorious and beautiful he is. I want us to see that today as he interacts with these, these folks that, are, that he's coming into contact with as he starts his ministry. And so we'll start at John chapter 1, verse 35. Now, John has been baptizing. Jesus has come to him. He has made his original declaration. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that I was telling you about. I'm not even worthy to untie his Air Jordans. <laughs> I can't even untie, it says, the thong of his sandal. It's like, guys, you, you're not even worthy to untie his shoe. That's John's humility. And now, don't, don't misunderstand who John the Baptist is. I mean, this guy had a following. 
he had crowds of people that were following him, wanting to be baptized by him. You know, he, it, apart from God and his you know, humility, he could have made him a name for himself. But he sees Jesus coming and he knows his place. And he has the humility of God within him. And he says, there's the one right there, Jesus. I am such a worm, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace. That's how awesome Jesus is. Look at him. Don't be, you don't need to look at me anymore, John says. Look at him. And so that sets us up for chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, emphatically, exclamation point. Now the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus uh, turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So I want to pause there for a minute. Now, John is addressing the third group of people in this section. And he addressed a group of religious leaders in verses 19 through 28, and he took care of all their questions. And who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? You know, this. Thanks, guys, for supporting my ministry. <laughs> We've come from Jerusalem, and we got to give an answer to our bosses back there in the temple, and we got to let them know, like, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? You're muscling in on our business here. It's kind of their attitude. So he addressed them, and then he addressed a second group of Jewish people in verses 29 through 34. And now he's speaking to some of his disciples here in 35 through 51. And everything about these accounts draws our focus in on Jesus. You imagine you're watching this movie and suddenly the camera focuses right in on Jesus. Like we've had all the other characters uh, introduced and now the lens is right here on Jesus. Even John the Baptist's own testimony to his own disciples. So he tells us, look. The Lamb of God, he is the worthy one. And he's, and he's saying this to his disciples. Now, he had a lot of disciples. There were a lot of people following him. We know that from later on in the gospel accounts. And it's interesting that only two of John's disciples listen to him here and want to know more. I thought that was interesting. You know, of all the people around John, and he's been declaring this quite a bit, he's not ashamed of it, he's yelling it out, and only two are interested in following Jesus? That's very strange to me. So only two among the whole multitude care to get to know Jesus a little bit more. And so these two follow him. To see what's going on. They're curious. They haven't totally like surrendered everything to him yet. They don't like, okay, John says this guy's amazing. Let's go check it out. So they follow him. And we see that one of the disciples here, one of them is Andrew. We see that in verse 40. 
The other one is likely the Apostle John who's writing the book. And we get a hint of that because of the specificity that he's writing with in verse 39. He says the exact hour in which they meet Jesus. So he doesn't identify himself. So I'm making an educated guess here. I'll just tell you that. He doesn't identify himself. But this is kind of John's way of writing. He's very specific. He tells them it was about the 10th hour. So he knows right when it was. I mean, there's no mistaking when you meet Jesus. Right? You're not forgetting that. He knew the hour. And by the way, this was written many, many, many years after this actually happened. And he still remembered the exact hour that he met Jesus. So my guess is that it's likely the Apostle John. And, and throughout the book, you'll see John never really names himself outright. He'll say the disciple Jesus loved, those types of things. <laughs> He's talking about himself. I always thought that was funny about John. And so they go to they meet Jesus at about the 10th hour, and they want to stay with him. They want to get to know him a little bit better. Let's see what John's talking about. Now, my son Noah, he asked me to incorporate grilled cheese into my sermon somehow this week. <laughs> so it could be that since it was around 10 a.m. that when this happened, and they went to stay with him, it could be that they had grilled cheese for lunch. It could be. The text doesn't say that, but it could be possible. <laughs> So there you go. Regardless of their lunch, they must have been quickly persuaded concerning who Jesus is, because look what happens next with Andrew. Andrew goes to get his brother Simon to tell him all about it. Hey, look at verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Whoa, like next. I mean, that day he's going and he's going to Simon. He's like, oh, we found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. And now every time Andrew is mentioned in the New Testament, he's bringing someone to Jesus. I wish I'd be more like Andrew. He's always bringing people to Jesus. And here he brings his brother Simon, Simon Peter, which we're going to learn more about in just a moment. And it's interesting also that John is the only New Testament author to use the term Messiahs, Messiah. And he does it here, and he does it in chapter 4, verse 25. The term Messiah means the anointed one, the chosen one. We have found the one. We have found the hope of Israel. We have found the one, the Messiah, the Christ. The word comes from a verb that means to anoint someone as an action involved in consecrating that person to a particular office or function. This is the one of God. Savior of Israel. The Messiah that Israel is looking for is their prophet, their priest, and their king. Prophet, priest, and king. And they have found him. The term Christ, because it's also translated here, it says, which means Christ. That's a Greek term. And that curl comes from a verb meaning to anoint. So he doesn't want any confusion here. He's using the Aramaic term. He's using the Greek term. This is the one, y'all. Pay attention. We found him. It's Jesus. John was right. He was right. 
Jesus is the anointed one of God. And Andrew's declaration to Peter is so precious. It, it reminds me of the parable that Jesus told. The pearl of great price. We have found that pearl of great price. It, it's, it's so beautiful and precious and valuable. It's worth selling everything you have to buy that one pearl. But we have found the true treasure of life. That, that when you find it, you, you go and bury it in the field. And then you go and sell everything that you have to buy that field to get that treasure. That's what they found. He's like, Simon, you got to come. You've got to come. We have found the Messiah. Jesus in his greatness and glory. Look at verse 42. And so he brings him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, Jesus knows all, all these guys. You're Simon, son of John. He knows all of that. He didn't have to ask, uh, hey, Andrew, what's your brother's name again? Like, I'm sitting at the table last night at the fellowship, and I have to ask somebody their name like five times. My old brain just can't stick it, right? It's like, I can't remember it. And you're David and Vernon, and I still can't remember the lady. See? But Jesus, he doesn't have that problem. Hey, you're Simon. And I'm going to change your name here. You're going to be called Cephas, or which means Peter. You will be called Rock. So he told Peter, you'll be called rock. Cephas is rock in the Aramaic. Peter is rock in the Greek. So John, the author right here, he's establishing roles and identities right out of the gate in John 1. He's getting right to it. Peter is given a new identity by our Savior, rock. And that, that's what happens when we... When we know Jesus, he makes us new. He gives us a new identity in him. You're a child of God. We know from Matthew 16, 18, he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So you can imagine, you know, hell has gates and walls, and there's all these lost souls being held captive in there. And the church assails the gates of hell and brings salvation to those who believe. The gates of hell cannot stand against the testimony of Jesus through the church. They will, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have victory as a church. To preach the gospel that the Holy Spirit would save souls and give life and light to the world. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so Peter is now rock. Simon is now rock. So when we talk about the rock, we should be referring to Peter the apostle, not Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Say the rock, that's Peter. Ah, yeah, I know about Peter. And then ultimately we know God is the true rock of our salvation. Look at verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. <clears throat> now, Philip was from Bethsaida, 
the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. So now we see Jesus is actively calling his disciples. You know, the two at first heard John's testimony and they followed out of curiosity. Now they're going to get others. And Jesus is actively calling disciples. He first calls Philip. Philip then finds Nathaniel. And he says this amazing thing. Look what Philip said. We have found him. Andrew said, we found the Messiah. Philip says, we found him. The one Moses and the prophets wrote about Jesus. That's the one. Now, when he refers to the law and the prophets here, he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. That's how they would have talked about the scriptures in those days. He says, we found him. We found the one. And it's Jesus. All of the Bible talks about him and we found him. Philip believed that Jesus was the Messiah foretold in the scriptures. Now, Nathaniel's skeptical. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you sure? Come and see. Come and see the one. You can imagine the excitement in his voice and in his face and everything. We've been longing for him all of these years. And he's here. He's here. You've got to come see him. So Nathaniel comes, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Wouldn't that be weird? I mean, that'd be weird. I mean, we know who Jesus is now, and we, we understand his power and everything. But can you imagine, you know, Nathaniel comes to Jesus. Jesus, right out of the gate, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Daniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's an amazing declaration for somebody you just met. He just met him. This is the first time he's laid eyes on him. Now, there's a lot going on in this, these few little verses here, 47 through 49. And in the closing of these verses, we're being taken back in our minds. The imagery, we're giving imagery and contrast to the patriarch Jacob. So I want us to go in our minds back to the book of Genesis, to, to Jacob. And remember Jacob, because we're going to see a lot about Jacob in these next sections of text. Now, if you remember Jacob, Isaac's son, what was Jacob known for? He was filled with guile and deceit, wasn't he? He's a usurper, a liar, a trickster, full of guile and deceit. His father Isaac had even complained, speaking to Esau, his brother, in Genesis 27, your brother came with guile as, and has taken away your blessing. And so that word guile there, it fits right with what Jesus just said about Nathaniel. 
Nathaniel, he said to him, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And some of your Bibles say in, in whom there's no guile. And so immediately as the Jewish reader in this context, you'd be like, whoa, that's going back to Jacob right and so he's, he's, he's giving a comparison, a contrast, and an imagery here of Nathaniel in this context, taking us back to Genesis 27. If you remember the story of Jacob, he deceived his father. He cheated his brother out of the blessing. He was also deceptive in his dealings with his uncle Laban, who Laban also, you know, was also very skilled in guile and deceit, <laughs> had some good tricks of his own up his sleeve had for Jacob. So we see, you know, the employment of trickery for selfish advantage not only characterized Jacob himself, but also his descendants. So a really honest and sincere Israelite, a Jew without duplicity or guile had become such an exception that at the approach of Nathaniel, Jesus exclaimed, truly an Israelite in whom deceit does not exist. Look, Here's Nathaniel, an honest Israelite. So this designation of being an authentic or worthy Israelite placed Nathaniel within God's great intention of transforming Jacob and his offspring. During the wrestling match with God that Jacob had, and I remember that story as well, Jacob received a new name of Israel. You no longer be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel, which means prince with God. And, and that's what it's like when we encounter God. We are changed. We are changed. And Jacob was changed in that account. You can read about it in Genesis 32. Now, Nathaniel is really blown away here. That He says, whoa. First of all, how, how do you know me? And then Jesus clarifies, hey, before Philip even called you, I saw you. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. I mean, he's being very specific here. He's not leaving any question about it. And so this really rocked Nathaniel's world because you can tell, look at his declaration. I mean, this must have been a, a very secret place for Nathaniel. It's all I can guess where he had, you know, very quiet time with the Lord or just a place where he could be with himself. He didn't expect anyone really to know about this place. Because when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, look at Nathaniel's declaration. Rabbi, you are the son of God. Now, they wouldn't just say that about anybody who they just met. And he, he is having a life-changing encounter with the king of glory right in this moment. And declares it. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now notice Jesus's reaction. He accepts all of this praise. He didn't say, you know, what do the angels say when, when, when someone tries to worship the angels, right? Go, the angels are like, no, no, no. Don't do that. <laughs> you worship God alone. right? Anytime you see that in the, in the scriptures, you know, they don't accept that praise and worship. They're like, no, no, no. You get up. Don't do that. But Jesus accepts it because it's true. He is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. And the apostle John, the author, wants us all to know that and believe it. Jesus accepts all the praise. In fact, he adds to Nathaniel's declaration with one of his own. Verse 50. 
Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're going to see that, Nathaniel. Now, that, that's a very interesting thing to say, isn't it? I mean, think of all the things Jesus could have said in that moment. Oh, Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, I'm going to heal the blind. I'm going to heal the sick. Uh, I'm going to challenge all these Pharisees and religious leaders. Matter of fact, I'm even going to raise the dead, Nathaniel. Wait till you see that. You're not going to believe that one when it happens. I mean, that's kind of where our minds go. But where, where does Jesus tell him? You will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, for us, if we don't have any knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, we might be like, well, that's an interesting vision. Why would he say that? Okay. But again, he, he is trying, John is taking us back to Genesis here. He's helping us to see that this is the, the God who, who wrestled with Jacob. And that's, that's Jacob's dream that he had. It's Jacob's dream of the ladder to heaven. You might remember that, that story from the Old Testament. Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau because he stole his brother Esau's blessing. And Esau's like, okay, I'm going to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to kill him. This brother of mine, I've had it. Some of you might feel that way about your brothers. I'd encourage you not to kill them. You know, love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll start right here in our families. But Esau's fed up, man. He's not, all right, that's it. <clears throat> took my birthright. Took my blessing. I'm killing this guy. And so he's, uh, Jacob's on the run. And his mother says, you got to go. He's going to kill you. His father says, yeah, you got to get out of here. Uh, go. And so they send Jacob off. And he's on the run. And he comes to a place. And he's, he's getting tired from his journey. He's, he's fleeing for his life. And he lays down, puts his head on a rock for a pillow. He didn't even bring his camping gear. I mean, he's sleeping on a rock. <clears throat> and he dreamed, Genesis 28. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. This is Jacob's dream. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, so God's talking to Jacob in his dream. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And he's confirming the promise to Abraham right here. And in you. All your offspring shall all, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the exact promise God made to Abraham and to Isaac, and now he's confirming it to Jacob. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you, God says, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. You see, God always keeps his promises to us. Never forget that. You may feel so distant from God. You may feel like, God, I know you promised this, but 
I just, I can't see how it's going to happen. I don't understand how it's going to happen, God. You seem so far from me, God. God always keeps his promises. I will not leave you. Jacob woke up from his sleep and he, he knew something very amazing had just happened. I have just heard the voice of God. He woke up from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And he named that place Bethel, which means house of God. And so back to John, Jesus is reminding Nathaniel of Jacob's great Bethel experience. And we as readers today are reminded of it also. In the midst of Jacob's fearful crisis, running for his life, his very life, God taught Jacob that he is really present in the world. I am here, Jacob. I will keep my promise. I will not leave you. And here in John, Jesus is helping us to see that he is the true meaning of the word becoming flesh and tabernacling with us. And he's very emphatic here. Notice he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to see that a lot in the book of John when, when Jesus makes a statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention to this. Don't miss this, what I'm about to say. And he's bringing us that image right now because Jesus is trying to help us see he is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. He is the connection between God and man. Because God and man are separated. Our sins have separated us from God. God is holy and we are sinful and we cannot be on our own in the presence of God. We have no ability to be in the presence of God. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He is the connection. He is that ladder. He is the link between heaven and earth and the bond of union between God and man. Jesus is the one who, by means of his sacrifice on the cross, reconciles God to man. And so with the eye of faith, his disciples see, begin to see him in that light. And they will soon be able to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, when Jacob woke up from his dream, he explained, how awesome is this place? This is the, no other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he called the place Bethel. Jesus says, you're going to see much greater things than, than this. You're going to see what Jacob talked about. You're going to see me be the one that Jacob dreamed about, saw. This is the new Bethel, Nathaniel. It's me, Jesus. It's happening in me. It's not about a physical place anymore. It's about Jesus. He's the one where heaven and earth come together. And so his declaration here, he says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And he describes himself that way. That's Jesus' declaration about himself, the son of man. 
It culminates this portrayal of Jesus as God's one-of-a-kind son. Fully God, as we saw in the opening of John chapter 1, and now as he closes John chapter 1, fully man. Jesus is fully God, fully man. He is the Lamb of God. He is our teacher. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Jesus is him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus is the one we need to come and see. And if you haven't trusted in him today, I'm begging you, come and see. Believe in him today. Don't waste another minute of your life striving, chasing after the wind to try to save yourself. Jesus is standing saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Believe in Jesus today, and you will have rest for your weary, tired soul that's striving for salvation. Jesus is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. He is the son of man. Fully God and fully man. And so all of us have to rec reckon with, you know, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you today? Will you trust him today for your salvation? Will you turn from your sins and your striving and turn to him to be saved and believe in him today? For those who have trusted him, will you trust him with your greatest challenges of life? And you know what those are. Will you rest in him today in the greatest challenges and storms of life? Will you cry out to him and put your faith in him today? I pray that you will and have rest for your souls in the Lord Jesus today. And I think what John wants us to see here in chapter one is see Jesus in all of his glory. Trust fully in him and love and worship him today. And rejoice in him today. He is the son of God, the son of man. Amen.